The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Amay Code. She is the Pesticide Program Director at the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. She has more than 17 years of experience working to protect people and the environment from pesticides. During her career, Ms. Code has expanded integrated pest management in low-income housing, secured federal protections to reduce pesticide contamination in salmon-supporting waters, and engaged in education and outreach to increase understanding of the risks pesticides pose to our precious pollinators. Amay received her Master's of Science in Environmental Health with a minor in toxicology from Oregon State University. She is based in Eugene, Oregon, and the Xerces Society is based in Portland. Welcome, Amay. Thank you, Melinda. It is great to be here. Well, I am so concerned about our pollinators because it's my understanding that about one out of every three bites of food are dependent, for example, on certain pollinators and in keeping us well-nourished. So for anyone who works in the food field, we have got to protect these precious beings. And I'm concerned, too, about the ubiquitous use of pesticides in our food system that could be harming them and ultimately us. So let's just start out with a basic question. You know, how did you become interested in this area of study? You know, when I think back, I, you know, ever since I was quite little, I knew I was going to work on environmental issues. But where it really was cemented for me was when I was working in the Peace Corps in Honduras. And I was working on drinking water issues and bringing safe drinking water to families. And I saw in these agricultural fields a dramatic transition away from traditional planting styles where you, you know, integrated different crops and you had your squash in with your beans to this really industrial system where, and all of a sudden farmers were dealing with super weeds because of herbicide use. They were no longer able to have the same value in their corn because they were shifting to non-traditional corn seed. And we were seeing concerns with their water quality because of movement of chemicals into the system. So that was when I knew I wanted to be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And I think understanding how all of these pieces are connected is so critical for us. And unfortunately, as dietitians, I don't think that we as a profession really look enough or, excuse the pun, pollinate enough with other fields. So I'm really glad to have you here. And I'm especially concerned about a certain kind of pesticide called a neonicotinoid. And I wonder if you can explain a little bit about what they are and why they need to be discussed at everyone's dinner table. Well, I don't know if I would choose the dinner table to have the conversation, but we definitely need to better understand the concerns. You know, I've worked on pesticide issues for a long time, but when the neonicotinoids came onto the market and when we started seeing this dramatic increase in their use, I realized this is a class of chemicals that deserves extra focus, 
not only are they extremely long-lived, they are also very highly toxic to a broad set of insects. So we're not just targeting our pests. We're looking at causing harm to our aquatic insects, obviously to our pollinators. Um, and we can talk more about that one in three bites as well later because we're going to be knocking out some of our most nutritious foods with losing pollinators. Neonicotinoids are water-soluble, so they're moving into our waters. And as we, for pollinators specifically, they're systemic. They move up through a plant, get into the pollen and, and nectar, and cause a direct exposure route to our pollinators. And that's why we're seeing, and that's why we're so concerned about them, more so than many of the other chemicals that are out there. Not mm. to say that we don't need to look at this in a holistic way, though. Why were neonicotinoids developed? Where do we find them? Are they sprayed on plants? I understand that they're seed coatings. What is their purpose? Why were they developed in the first place? Interesting question. Um, the reality is, is our pesticide regulatory system often is reactive. And so you put a product on the market, 10, 15 years down the road, you find out that there's problems with it. So to a great extent, these neonicotinoids were considered the better solution than the organophosphate insecticides where we were seeing acute human health concerns with their application. So they were alternatives. Some people referred to them as reduced risk alternatives. They were actually pushed onto the market quite quickly, and some of the testing that normally would have been done was foregone in order to get them on the market. So they were there as alternatives to these organophosphates, and they can be used in many ways. As you mentioned, they're often put on seed coatings. Almost 100% of our conventional corn has a neonicotinoid on it. They do foliar applications. There's one that just the term concerns me. It's called a soil drench, where you just drench the soil and the chemical is uptaken by the plant. So there's a lot of ways of using it, and they're used for a lot of different pests on a lot of crops. Last piece about them that is I find very concerning is that because they're systemic, they're often applied before a pest arrives, so that you put it in the soil, it's uptaken by the plant, and then if and when a pest comes, that plant would be toxic to the insect. Mm -hmm. So that prophylactic use means that we're using pesticides even when there isn't a pest present. Now, granted, when there's a pest present, you shouldn't necessarily have pesticide be the first thing you reach for, but this prophylactic use is very concerning because we're really upping the stakes and increasing the amount of use. So I'm assuming that if this particular compound gets into the pollen and other parts of the plant, not only is it going to harm in insects, but it's also going to harm or potentially harm other end users like us and our children who are also getting residues in their food. This is an interesting topic. I think first we're seeing we have not found acute kind of short-term health effects from the use of these chemicals, and that is a good thing. But we really need to take a step back because because they're systemic, that means if you treat a squash plant, that squash has neonicotinoids in it. When you're eating it, you're not going to wash it off. You can't peel it away. It is inside the, the, the plant itself. Same for an apple, a potato, whatever other food that you're eating is going to have these chemicals in it, even at low levels. Trying to understand the long-term effects of these low-dose exposures is not something easy to do, but it's something that we really need to be thinking about. We should not just be allowing these chemicals to be used, especially when we're seeing that they are going to be in our foods. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the other piece that I think we don't look at very often, and it's harder to connect, is the indirect effects and the reality that we as humans are part of a broader ecosystem. We are dependent upon that system as well. And the fact that we're seeing significant loss of our insects, and we're seeing what we call cascading trophic effects. You lose your aquatic insects. You're starting to see reduction in the insectivorous birds. These sort of food web effects are going to impact us, and we need to be able to be more aware of those ecosystem effects and how they will harm us. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in terms of these broader effects, I also think we need to consider the synergies So not only I'm sitting here with a report on my desk, for example, the USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey, looked at insecticides, these neonicotinoids in particular. They looked at them as being present in water. And then I'm thinking to myself, what else is in the water? So there's also glyphosate from Roundup use. There's also nitrates in there. We never see studies of how all of these different compounds interact in the environment and how they might be influencing our health, too. Not maybe acutely, as you mentioned, but long-term chronic illness. You raise a really important concern, and I think really where I would immediately direct us to is that is showing the failing of our regulatory system to be able to address these risks. We are putting all these products on the market, and we look at them each in a vacuum individually, and we don't consider those broader risks in the environment. You know, when the U.S. Geological Survey, as you mentioned, goes out and takes a sample, rarely do they find only a single pesticide. They're often finding multiple pesticides in those samples. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to understand the environmental impacts and the impacts of these mixtures, but we absolutely need to start thinking about it or we're missing the boat. Mm -hmm. And not only the synergies, Amay, but also the idea that these compounds bioaccumulate. So from a public health perspective, at least with, you know, human nutrition, where do we find the bioaccumulation, like in our fatty tissue? And then when we go to, say, breastfeed our young, that's when we start mobilizing our fat. And also when we lose weight, we mobilize compounds that are in our fat. And those then, those compounds then can enter our breast milk, they can enter our bloodstream. So I'm concerned about the bioaccumulation, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, for looking at the neonicotinoids and a lot of the current pesticides that are used, we're not seeing bioaccumulation like we used to with those organochlorines, the DDT types, and that is a good thing but we are seeing buildup in the environment because of their persistence. So we're seeing an ever-increasing potential for exposure, and that in and of itself is also very concerning to me. So, for example, if every year you are planting corn that has been coated with a neonicotinoid, over time that soil is going to have more and more. You're going to have more uh, larger amounts in your food, in that soil, moving into our water. And so we are increasing those exposures in a different way. And that still is very concerning. And quickly to go back to those issues of mixtures, you talked about synergy. We are seeing more and more when they do test compounds together, we are seeing at least an additive effect, if not you know, this synergistic effect where significantly greater risk is there when you mix a couple of chemicals. And so 
so that again, going back to that, we need to be looking at that. Otherwise, we're not understanding the full extent of our risk. Yeah, you know, another thing that I hear from proponents, and I love the way these compounds are termed crop protection. <laughs> you know, we're not calling them pesticides in the larger community discussions. We're calling them crop protectors, which I always like to change that wording. But what we are typically told is that, oh, the residues are so small. You know, we're talking about parts per trillion, parts per million. I, I noticed here from the USGS report, it says one of the chemicals known to be toxic to aquatic organisms at 10 to 100 nanograms per liter. So how do we, how do we explain that really small amounts can have large biological effects? It's a challenging question, and I just have to say I love that you've recognized that we are trying to sanitize our language and reduce the people's uh, concerns by using terms like crop protection. And we really do need to go back to what these chemicals truly are. And they are there to cause harm to an insect, to a weed, to whatever other pest we are perceived. Um, how do we, you know, the way I go back to the simple fact that we know these chemicals are effective at managing pests at extremely low levels. Therefore, they're also going to be harmful at these very low levels. I also oftentimes compare our pesticide use with our, with when we're dealing with pharmaceuticals or taking drugs ourselves. These are often, you know, we're taking extremely low doses of these medicines in order, and, the, and at, that, at those low doses, they are biologically active. Same thing for our for pesticides. At extremely low doses, we can find effects mm -hmm. um, less than a part per billion. And you think, what is a part per billion? One person in China, it would be a part per billion. <laughs> but, um, these extremely low levels have caused really dramatic effects if you look in the lab and in the field. So we cannot ignore the reality of low doses causing harm. Yeah. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with a May Code. She is the Pesticide Program Director at the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. I want to talk a little bit about these very, very low levels and water treatment facilities. I don't know if you've looked at this at all, but we take for granted that we turn on the tap and the water coming out of our faucet is going to be clean and safe. And then I was reading the President's Cancer Panel Report that recommends that all Americans filter their tap and well water. And I wonder how many municipalities are tracking, let alone cleaning up, these minute levels of pollutants. Well, first thing is we we do, municipalities do track um, a small set of different pollutants, including a few of the pesticides, although the reality, it's very expensive to do that, and so they aren't able to track the vast majority that are out there. Um, the other thing we really need to be thinking about is we shouldn't be dealing with it at the end of the pipe. This is not something that we want to remove from the water once it's already there. We want to prevent them from moving into the water in the first place. Uh, it's extremely, not only is it expensive, sometimes it's almost impossible to be moving these getting these chemicals out of our waters. So, you know, that's one of the things that Xerces takes very seriously, working with growers, working on the ground to figure out ways to reduce their reliance 
on these chemicals and avoid that contamination from in the first place. Yeah, I think it's certainly the direction we need to take to just start pulling these compounds out of the system. And yet I feel so helpless sometimes in terms of this is such a big machine and it's certainly raising awareness is a first step, stopping use, having consumers be aware and demand products that are not farmed or produced with these compounds. But I just wanted to share with you that, and our listeners certainly, that I was recently at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting, and Monsanto was in the expo hall, and they were handing out packets of seeds, Pete's pollinator mix, Thank you for helping restore habitat for the monarch butterfly and other pollinators one seed at a time. And when I got this, I thought, well, that's interesting because I thought that some of the seeds that Monsanto has, and not just Monsanto, you know, there's Dow, Syngenta, all of the big seed companies and chemical companies provide seeds that are coated with these neonicotinoids. So when I questioned them on that, the response was, well, there's mixed science. So how does somebody interpret that when somebody says, well, yeah, you might have evidence to show that neonicotinoids are harmful, but, hey, we've got other studies saying that we don't see harm. You know, I feel like we we really need to look deep into that research, and the reality is you can, you can always find mixed science, and you can always find science that will seek to get the answer that they so desire. And we aren't going to have a smoking gun. Our world is too complex to have any one answer. But when I look at the science of neonicotinoids, you can see a study, you can see the studies that show dramatic effect from very low doses. And you can look at the methods. I'm going way too deep into the science, but the reality is is when you have when you do a study and you really do it to to try to understand what the problem is, not get the answer that you want, you often can find a lot more truth to it than if you are designing a study to get the answer you want. And so I guess it's a roundabout way of saying you don't want to have science be performed by the people that are going to be economically supported by the science, the answers they desire. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I fully answered that. It's a very challenging. It's really, and I think, but we can look at the weight of evidence. If we can look at the quality of the research, that's how we can get drilled down I think the other really important piece here is that when we're talking about our health, we're talking about the health of our environment, and we're seeing dramatic effects, we might not have a smoking gun, but we need to act with caution. We should institutionalize that caution and not wait till we have all the answers before we act. Honestly, if we waited for all the answers, it would probably be too late. Yeah. And that might be a good segue to talk about that one in three bites that we wanted to get back to. What's happening to our pollinators, and what's at risk with regard to our food system? The Xerces Society spends a lot of time following our native pollinators. We have an amazing diversity of pollinators here in North America, thousands of different species. Uh, When we look at our bumblebee populations, and one of our researchers has been pulling through decades of data on bumblebees, his research has shown that more than one quarter of our nation's bumblebees are at risk of extinction. So we are at a precipice. We are at a place where there is significant concern for our pollinators. 
you know, you were talking about one in three bites of food. It's not, you know, it's not just that one in three bites. We'd be losing so many of our fruits and vegetables. We would be left with not only a very bland diet, but a, a very um, diet with the very little nutrition. So we really need to be thinking about the the impacts of losing our pollinators. And it's not just us and our food. We need pollinators to maintain our native plants. You know, so much of the food that our wildlife depends upon is also pollinated. So we, the effect to our songbirds, even to, you know, something as big as a grizzly bear is going to be affected by the loss of our pollinators. Yeah. Understanding how we're all connected is such a key piece of this discussion. I'd like to know more about how we address this perception that we have about insects being bad and this need to kill what we really don't understand and people running out and buying what we perceive to be as, you know, safe enough to drink kinds of preparations. How do we re-educate the population about this? I'm so glad you asked that. Um, less than 1% of our insects are even considered pests. And even those pests have a real value within our environment. Um, in fact, if you start looking out there, you know, at our insect world, it's amazing the interconnections and the number of insects that provide us a real benefit, whether that be um, predators to our pest species or pollinating our food. You know, I wish every single child in school had the time to sit and just watch some small system of insects and how they work. I think all of our, you know, to, to give children that time would be amazing because it's true. We get squeamish about our insects. Even to just look at an arachnid, look at a jumping spider. First, it looks like this fuzzy, crazy creature with shining eyes on top of its head. And then you learn that they're just curious and they're actually very friendly. And to transition your thoughts away from this scary, fuzzy thing jumping at you to recognize it, it's as curious about you as you are of it, would be just amazing. We do need to make that transition. We are, unfortunately, at best concerned and squeamish about it and at worst afraid of many very valuable creatures. And they are so important in our world. It's, they really are the foundation of our ecosystems. Yeah, I wish we did have more education at that level. I noticed that some of the pesticide manufacturers under the umbrella of Crop Life America are moving into lower and lower grades with quote-unquote educational materials, teaching children to use a spray to kill a bug or that these kinds of products are safe. And I'm very concerned about industry moving into these sacred spaces of public education and reaching our children in particular when they're so young and impressionable. You've summed it up. I don't have anything to add to that. I think you're very right. We taking the time to inform our kids and, and let them understand the value of what is around us. It's so important. And making sure that they get the right messages. Yeah. And it's, and it's not easy. It is a very uh, difficult thing to have. 
you know, the Xerces Society at kind of on a, a little bit of a different scale. We spend so much time educating and working with our growers so that our growers and our farmers out there that are producing our food understand the value of the insects that they have around them. You know, our integrated pest management specialist has been out in the field with farmers to show them just how many native pollinators they might have in their field that they didn't even know they had. Or to let them know about what an assassin bug is, which, you know, what a name. I think a kid could be captivated by that. But the assassin bug is a great predator of so many different pest species. So captivate what their interests are and show them. But we are out in the field trying to do that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that corn, most of the corn is treated. What about the other commodity crops? Are, are those treated too, equaling, I, I think you mentioned earlier, hundreds of millions of acres? So uh, the majority of our conventional soybean, a lot of our canola, as well as corn, a number of those row crops currently are planting, they're planting coated seeds. In fact, and what's really interesting is we're finding more and more research showing that those coated seeds aren't even providing the pest and the crop protection value that they're promoted as. There was a study out of Penn State that came out last year actually showed soybean yield reduction if you use coated seeds because those coated seeds, there were slugs eating the plant and the plant was, but the slugs were not harmed by the neonicotinoid in the plant. So the slugs continued to eat the plants. But when predatory beetles went to eat the slugs, they were being killed by eating the, the toxic slugs. So the slugs continued to persist, but their predator did not. So we actually saw yield reduction with coated seed. This is the value that we need to understand, and we need to try to break these systems where we think that their chemical solutions are always the right first choice. Well, I have to give a plug to the Xerces organization because – you have so much information on your website, and we'll provide a link to that. I know that you're really focused on the invertebrate conservation. Are you looking at all on the effects of some of these compounds on soil microbes as well? You know, we have not done that research specifically, but clearly part of with our work to try to find reduce people's reliance on pesticides, a huge part of that is having healthy soil so that you can have healthier plants. The healthier your plants are, the more able they are to resist any particular pest problem. So really when you have a weaker system, when you have poor soil, you have more a greater risk of pests coming in and causing harm. So whereas we haven't done some of, we haven't really pulled together some of that information we are, when we're out in the field, we are working to improve soil health all the time. It is an extremely important part of having healthy plants. And when you have a pest in your garden, don't just immediately go out and get that spray can. Think about what it is. Well, first find out if it is actually a pest or maybe it's just something out there that's a value. But think, why? Is my soil, do I have the wrong pH of soil? Do I not have enough nutrition? Is this getting too much water or not enough water? Do I have enough sunlight? Ask yourself those base questions before you go out and get that spray can. I think that is a fabulous note 
on which to end our interview. I knew our time together would fly. Listeners, we have been speaking with Amay Code. She is the Pesticide Program Director at the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank Amay for joining me and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Amay, for your work at the Xerces Society. We'll provide a link, and I should just spell that for our listeners. It's Xerces, X-E-R-C-E-S dot org. Again, we'll provide a link so you can access some of their great educational materials. Thank you again for being my guest in your work. Thank you so much.